Hello. Before we jump into the show, we need to shout out our awesome new sponsor, Marquee TV. Man, I was so excited when we got the news about the sponsor. You all might remember from a few weeks ago that I talked about my new Shakespeare project where I'm learning everything I can about Macbeth. It felt like we said the name Shakespeare out loud and the marquee people appeared and said, (laughs) we gotcha. It really did. Yeah. In case you're not familiar, Marquee TV is a streaming service. They have theater, ballet, opera, documentaries. There's a bunch of behind the scenes content of productions. Basically, it's a fun way to nerd out about the arts. Yeah, it's a streaming service that will take you to the best theaters in the world from the comfort of your own sofa. I've already added so many things to our watch list. Did you know there's a ballet based on the works of Beatrix Potter? I did. They've got a little preview video of somebody dancing around in a rabbit costume. Peter Rabbit doing ballet. (laughs) I also added a few hip-hop dance shows just to balance out the dancing bunnies. Yeah, (laughs) hip-hopra. That's what they call it. They do. It's so fun. Mozart's Requiem from the London Philharmonic Orchestra and a bunch of Shakespeare plays, including Richard II starring my pretend best friend, David Tennant. And Judy Dench talking about her long relationship with Shakespeare in a master class. Yeah, I love Judy Dench. Sure. But David Tennant. Yeah, that's quite a battle there. Okay. There's a special deal for our listeners. Marquee TV is offering three months of their service for 99 cents. You get three months of all of this good stuff for 99 cents yeah. with the code SSOP. That cost seems absurdly low to me. Like first, I expected it to be much higher given the quality of the content, but also 99 cents. You, you can't park next to a theater for 99 cents. Accurate. Also, if you watch Marquee TV, you get to see these shows maybe wearing your pajamas and hanging out with your cat yeah. or your dog. Yeah. It's a good way to sort of indulge your own curiosity. You can see all the performances of Hamlet or maybe the first 15 minutes of all of the performances of Hamlet, and you don't have to rope your friends and family into all of that. Or you could watch Richard II over and over and over and over. <laughs> What's the best angle for David Tennant in Richard II? Trick question. All of them. <laughs> anyway, You definitely need to explore the website because there is a ton of really fun, fascinating, engaging stuff on there. I went in specifically looking for Shakespeare and I found a ton of other things I wanted to watch. Yeah. You can keep up with what they're doing on social media at Marquee Arts TV. You can visit their website at marquee.tv. That's marquee.tv to get three months of their service for just 99 cents with the promo code SSOP. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And now the show. Hello. Welcome to Strong Sense of Place. In each episode, we focus on one destination and discuss what makes it different than any other place on Earth. Then we recommend five books we love that took us there on the page. I'm Melissa Jolan. I'm David Humphreys. We're going around the world one great read at a time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Strong Sense of Place. Today, we get curious about Kenya. Now, 
In Two Truths and a Lie, I'm going to tell you a story about a creature who is half man, half beast, half country music legend. That's three halves. Yeah. <laughs> it's a complicated story. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about five books we love. I'm recommending a sweet rom-com told from the male point of view and set in the world of Kenyan bird watching. I have a book that made Ernest Hemingway jealous. But first, Mel's going to bring us up to speed with the Kenya 101. Kenya's found in East Africa, about halfway down the continent, with a coast on the Indian Ocean. As you move inland from the East Coast, the land rises into plateaus and mountains, and the capital city of Nairobi sits in those highlands. The photos of Nairobi's skyline are about what you'd expect. There are high-rise buildings with lots of windows, traffic in the streets. National Geographic calls it a blossoming capital with experimental chefs, edgy art galleries, a lively bar scene, and ecologically-minded boutiques. So as an urban environment, it has all the stuff you want in your city experience. Looks a little jumbly like a European city. It does. But let me lay this on you. Yep. Nairobi is the only city in the world that includes a national park. Yeah, and it's got animals in it. The photos are literally wild. <laughs> in the background, you've got your gray skyscrapers, and then, oh, look, there's a giraffe in the foreground. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Nairobi National Park is home to black rhinos, lions, leopards, cheetahs, hyenas, buffaloes, and 400 kinds of birds. There are hiking trails and picnic sites and camping all within the city limits. Yeah. I love the idea that you could have a nice breakfast, maybe some rice coconut pancakes. Those are called vibibi, which is also fun to say. And then you can take a 15-minute drive and go hang out with a zebra. Yeah. Or you could bike there. Ooh, good one. Yeah. Big breakfast, bike, zebra, nap. Yeah. The stunning nature does not stop there. If you go out the other side of Nairobi toward the west, you get to the Great Rift Valley. That's a trench that cracks the earth open from Syria to East Africa. It is a long, long trench. It is. And it's like a pressure valve. It lets out energy in the form of hot springs, geysers, volcanoes, and earthquakes. It's all very dramatic and very beautiful. If you picture a Kenyan safari, you're probably thinking of scrubby brown savanna. Yeah, the flatlands, sure. But along the Great Rift Valley, there are big buff-colored rock formations and deep green hills and bright blue lakes dotted with hot pink flamingos. The whole thing is infused with color. Before we get into the other fantastic things to see and do in Kenya, I want to take a brief tour of history for context. For our purposes, modern Kenyan history is basically two big buckets, before colonialism and after. Yeah. Before, Kenya was populated by dozens of indigenous tribes. Its coast was part of an Indian Ocean trading route, so that brought Arab traders along with influences from the Middle East, Persia, and India. And all of that kind of got thrown into a big pot with African customs. So languages merged, Islam took root, people intermarried. All of that led to the growth of the Swahili culture. Then, in the 1880s, the British showed up. By 1920, Kenya was officially a British colony. And after World War II, Kenyans had kind of had enough. Yeah. There were multiple uprisings, and in 1963, the Independent Republic of Kenya was born. 
At the Uhuru Stadium, the articles of independence were handed by the Duke to the country's prime minister. But as you might expect, that didn't solve everything. There was, and still is, government corruption and tension among the different ethnic groups. And when we talk about our books, we're going to see a lot of that. Now seems like a good time to mention that there are 68 different languages spoken in Kenya. Wow. Because of all those different ethnic groups. Yeah. The two official languages are British English and Swahili. But as we saw in Jamaica, the official languages are used for formal conversations and for school, government, interactions, that kind of thing. But with friends and family, people speak their mother tongue or Kenyan English. Okay. Now let's talk about the reasons to visit Kenya. There are many. There are many. I want to read you a quote from a book I'm going to talk about later. I loved it for setting the scene. Where else can you find a snow-capped mountain of such magnificence as our Mount Kenya and a coast of palm-lined beaches? What other country has deserts and forests, lakes and rivers, hills and plains like ours? Where else are the men so handsome and the women so beautiful? And where else can you see so many birds? Not only birds, lions, elephants, cheetahs, giraffes, impala, gazelle, warthogs, bush pigs, wildebeest. It is true. We are blessed. It is a fine country that we live in. That's really nice. So all of that is waiting for you in Kenya. Yeah. But before you head out in a Jeep on a safari, you might want to visit the coastal city of Mombasa. The best way to get there is a train from Nairobi called the Mataraka Express. It passes through two national parks, so you probably see animals along the way. If you're into the whole vibe of the old market scenes in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, you will love Mombasa. The food, culture, and architecture of the city blends all of the influences of that Indian Ocean trade I mentioned earlier. The old town is a warren of narrow streets and pastel-colored buildings with Moorish arches, orange tile roofs and ornate balconies. At the entrance to this avenue that goes into the old town, there's an archway gate over the street made from two pairs of enormous aluminum elephant tusks. Whoa. So cool. And on a point overlooking the coast is Fort Jesus. That's a boxy, sand-colored military fort built by the Portuguese in the 16th century. After you've walked around... You can laze on the soft beaches and splash in the Indian Ocean. And there are these very romantic wooden boats with white sails called Dow. And you can take a sunset cruise to the nearby island of Zanzibar. That sounds great. We should go. (laughs) Now? Yeah. I want to take a sunset cruise to Zanzibar. Sure. The largest ethnic group in Kenya is the Gekoyo people. Their population is about 7 million. There's also the Elmolo tribe, which is only about 500 people. They live on the shore of a lake in the Rift Valley. But you've probably heard of the Maasai. And if you haven't heard that name, I bet you would recognize a photo. They're good jumpers. (laughs) They are good jumpers. (laughs) They're the very tall, slim, nomadic people who wear those distinctive red cloth robes and always seem to be smiling in photos. Yeah. That red fabric is called shuka. And it symbolizes courage and strength. They also wear layers of colorful beaded necklaces that change throughout time to represent their age, social status, marital status, and other kind of life markers. Kind of like military people have medals. They have have their beautiful colored beads. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. 
The reason I mention this is because there are well-known tours you can take to visit the Maasai. With the participation of the tribes, organizations have set up land conservancies to protect the Maasai tradition of living off of the land, while also at the same time conserving wildlife and the ecosystem. I found this really fascinating and very cool. The land is leased to conservation groups and tour operators. And in exchange, the Maasai continue with their traditional herding practices while also getting services like clean water, health care, and schools. So it seems like a, a thoughtful blending of their traditional lifestyle and living in a modern world. And stewarding the land itself, I would imagine. Yes. So you can go and meet the people of the village with a Maasai as your guide. They explain the Maasai people's deep knowledge of the land and traditional medicine and how they make fires, and you can see how they've lived for hundreds of years. The other detail that I found really interesting is that they also have cell phones and Facebook pages, and many of the younger members of the tribe go to college and then come back to their villages to continue to live that traditional lifestyle, but with knowledge of modern practices too. Finally, we need to talk about food just a little. I'm excited to hear about what they eat there. (laughs) Well, I'm going to begin with this statement from Lonely Planet. Okay. Make the best of starch and gravy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, to be honest, I couldn't be more in. That is a very compelling statement for me. (laughs) Kenyan cuisine is built around fresh seafood, grilled meat, and lots and lots of lovely starchy things like cassava, sweet potato, pumpkin, taro root, beans, and ugali. Ugali? Ugali is a sort of firm, savory porridge made from cornmeal. Like That all sounds like such good comfort food. And the kind of thing you would want to eat if you were going to go walking with your herd all day. Yeah. So there you have it. You're going to fly to Nairobi and take the train to Mombasa. You're going to meet the Maasai and go on a safari to see the big five animals and fill your belly with starches. Great. I know that all sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. That's the Kenya 101. Awesome. Are you ready for Two Truths on a Lie? Absolutely. I'm about to say three statements. Two of them are true. One of them is not. Mel does not know which one is the lie. Okay, so first, uh, Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers was a musician in the U.S. who rose to fame in the 1920s. He's been called the father of country music, and he's best known for his yodeling. Hmm. Here's what he sounds like. Here's the statement. A Kenyan tribe used to think that country music pioneer Jimmy Rogers was a mythical half-man Half beast. (laughs) I mean, I can see why. Yeah. That's another worldly sound. Yeah. Statement two. There is a tribe of super athletes in Kenya. And statement three. There's a hotel in Kenya where you can feed the giraffes from your breakfast table. Oh, that sounds nice. (laughs) You've done a good job. They all sound true. Thanks. Let's do those one at a time from the top. Okay. First one, a Kenyan tribe used to think that country music pioneer Jimmy Rogers was a mythical half-man, half-beast. True. That's the lie. Oh, darn it. (laughs) Although it is shrouded in some truth. So here's the story. It starts with an English ethnomusicologist. His name was Hugh Tracy. He and his wife used to travel through Africa from the 20s to the 70s, collecting the music of the African people. They would pull into a village with a reel-to-reel tape machine and record the music there. He would eventually publish over 200 LPs of his recordings. Wow, cool. Yeah. 
A writer at The New Yorker would later describe his work this way, quote, the kind of impulse that Tracy felt is equal parts imperious and visionary. (laughs) One day, sometime in the 50s, Tracy and his wife get to a village and they start talking to the locals. And they get a series of songs they call Chamirocha. And he records those songs. Here's one of them. The girls here are singing about dancing so hard your pants fall off. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. And then when he's talking to them about the songs, he realizes that they have previously heard the music of Jimmy Rogers. And the ethnomusicologist believes that this is their interpretation of his style. And the locals describe him, Jimmy Rogers, as a half-man, half-beast. This Jimmy Rocha. (laughs) Tracy hears that, and he spreads that story around. These Kenyans believe that Jimmy Rogers is a fawn of some kind. Time passes. Tracy founds the International Library of African Music, which is to this day the largest archive of African music south of the Sahara. He made his recordings available to everyone, and in 1977 he died. Many years later, in the early 2000s, the woman who was then running the International Library of African Music realizes that the musicians who were recorded have never heard the recordings. And she says we should return the music to the people who recorded it. Yep. This takes some time. Eventually, they find the man who organized the singers for Tracy back in the 50s. He's an old man now. Mm-hmm. And they ask him about the recordings. And they learn two things. First, Chemirocha meant many things. It could mean anything strange and new. There was also a group of songs called Chemirocha that were slow and nice. That's how they described them, <laughs> slow and nice. But they also knew of Jimmy Rogers, the man. And when they asked him about the half-beast part, the old man said, yeah, they thought Chemi Rocha was half-beast because they thought all white people were half-beast. <laughs> they ate food that looked like worms, white rice, and they preached about eating Christ's body and blood. Plus, they used to gather blood from the locals for the war effort, so they would just gather these men together and take their blood (laughs) with no backstory. Right. So the tribe made some assumptions about the white people being at least part animal. Wow. I I mean, I don't blame them. Yeah. Yeah, same. And I can't help but thinking that Jimmy Rogers would have gotten a kick out of that whole thing. (laughs) Totally. Okay, statement two. There is a tribe of super athletes in Kenya. We know that to be true now. We do. Kenya has been... A dominating force in long-distance running for the last 30 years or so. I feel like if you're anywhere near track and field, you're already aware of this. (laughs) To give you some context, the record for the fastest marathon has been broken nine times since the turn of the century, each one faster than the last. Six of those records and five of the last five are from Kenyans. Statistically, that is an absurd tilt. There are only about 50 million Kenyans. And there are 8 billion people. (laughs) So how are all of those great runners coming from this one country? And it's not just marathons. It's everything from 800 meters up. And a whole lot of that talent comes from one large tribe. The Kalenjin tribe is 5 million strong. 
And according to an article from The Guardian, they hold 40% of the world's distance running records. Wow. The world's greatest male marathoner, Kalijin, the world's greatest female marathoner, Kalijin. Mathematically, it would be as if most of the record-holding U.S. runners are from a six-block area in Chicago. (laughs) Nobody really knows why. And it's undoubtedly a combination of many things. Many Kalenjin have an excellent physique for running. They have thin legs and they're small and they have good circulation. Many of them live at altitude. Some of them ran to school every day, sometimes up to 10K both ways. Wow. Yeah. There's also cultural inertia, right? This is a thing we do well, so we're going to keep doing that thing. Mm-hmm. One of the Kalenjin that I wanted to mention is a man named Julius Yego. He is not a runner. He's a javelin thrower. In 2016, he won a silver medal at the Olympics. He learned how to throw the javelin and train by watching YouTube videos, (laughs) presumably on his phone. And then finally, there's a hotel in Kenya where you can feed giraffes from your breakfast table. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's true. There's a hotel in a suburb of Nairobi called Giraffe Manor. That's a great name. Yeah. It's modeled on a Scottish hunting lodge. It's a 12-bedroom manor. It's all decked out in furniture from the 30s. One of those bedrooms is furnished with the belongings of Karen Blixen, better known in the U.S. by her pen name, Isaac Dennison. She wrote Out of Africa and Babette's Feast. Mm -hmm. There's a tribe of giraffes that live on the land there, and they show up. They stick their heads through the doors and windows (laughs) for a little something in the morning. Guests can feed their giraffes from their breakfast table or through the front door or from the second story bedroom window. Oh, that's so cute. You could you could have waffles with a giraffe. <laughs> and it looks Vibibi. I wonder if they like Vibibi. Maybe, yeah. It all looks very charming. The rooms are a little spendy. I clicked around a bit and they were going for a little over two thousand dollars a night. Oh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> However, if you want to see Kenya for a whole lot less, you can. I looked up airfare, which was around $1,000 round trip to Nairobi from Europe or New York or L.A. if you plan in advance. A nice-looking hotel there is about $200 a night. And then you could take day trips with different tours. Like you said, you could spend a day touring a Maasai village or pedal a bike tour of a national park or take a jeep around Lake Naivasha. All of those start around $120 for the day. As far as a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see some fantastic things you'll never forget, That seems almost cheap. It does. TripAdvisor and Google Travel have all the information you'd need. That's two truths and a lie. I think the only question remaining is when are we going to come (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. 
R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Are you ready to talk about books? I am. I'm starting with a heavy hitter today. Okay. My first recommendation is Dust by Yvonne Uwar. This is a dreamlike exploration of grief and idealism set against the backdrop of Kenyan modern history. It tells the story of one family to sort of reveal the larger story of life in Kenya. Okay. The book opens with a prologue and you are thrust right into an action scene. And this is the most straightforward part of the book. A young man named Odidi is literally running for his life when he's shot down in an alley in Nairobi. As he lies dying, his last thoughts are of his sister, Ajani, and snapshots of his personal history. He remembers a beating from his father, rescuing his baby sister from vultures, a scary excursion into a cave, and what it was like to attend an English-style boarding school. And there are two big takeaways from this prologue. First, the most important person in his life was his sister, Ajani. And second, life in Kenya is difficult and complicated. Yeah. And then the story proper begins after this prologue, and it plays off all of the little hints and pieces of history that are laid out in the prologue. I want to read you a snippet from Odidi's funeral so you can get a sense of Uwar's writing style. Okay. To me, it felt like an impressionist painting, like dabs of words and thoughts. This also gives you the view from inside Ajani's head, which is really helpful in understanding her character. Ajani scrubs her face and stares at two sides of the world. Before now was four hours and 43 minutes ago. Rained upon earth mingling with smoke and age and dust and sun and cows on a father's coat. And her head tucked into its folds and welcome at the airport. The scent of coming home from all her far aways. But now is icy eternity, thick with the terror of the voicelessness of her big brother. But now is made of the murmured anguish of other strangers, a ragged quartet oozing old clothes smell, wet eyes, life-hardened faces, as unadorned as the ill-nailed empty coffin on the cement. A Johnny looks away from these other citizens of the sea of absence. That is beautiful and tough. Yeah. And that is the entire book. Yeah. Really beautiful, really brutal. At the funeral, we meet Odidi's family. So there are blood relatives, his mother, father, and uncle, and also lifelong friends that are like family. There's also a mysterious British man and his son who have important ties to the family. But that is all shrouded in secrets. Even as kids, Ajani and Odidi couldn't get their parents to open up about it. So it's this presence in their lives that they don't really understand. Yeah. As Ajani mourns her brother, Two mysteries are slowly being resolved. Who killed Odidi and why? And who is this Brit that keeps popping up in family history? Yeah. Because this is a literary novel, the way the mysteries are revealed is not through investigation. We learn the truth of everything through the character's thoughts and snapshots of memory and conversations that are very rich with subtext. This book demands your full attention. That's one of the things that I enjoyed about it, but it probably won't be for everyone. Right. There are no passages of exposition that explain the politics or history 
or characters' complex emotional reactions to things. I feel like the author puts a lot of trust in the reader to follow her lead. I did Google a few names of Kenyan political leaders and a few dates, but it's really not necessary. You can just exist in this world without needing to connect it to the real historical events. Right. Because it all makes internal emotional sense. And for me, that was really the power of this book. The narrative drive all comes from emotion. There is action. The whole story is grief made manifest in actions. So there are devastating flash floods and physical knockdown drag out fights and gun battles and weaponized sex and tender moments and the scene of very frenetic dancing that made me so uncomfortable. Why is that? Huh? Why did it make you uncomfortable? Because it was just like this desperate, sweaty dancing in this emotionally heightened state. It wasn't joyous. It was cathartic, I guess. Okay. Anyway, it's clear in all of these more action-oriented scenes that what's happening are outward expressions of overwhelming things that are happening inside the people. Yeah. Emotionally rich. Yes. All of the characters, even the ones who only show up for a scene or two, are very vividly rendered. And all of them are simultaneously on the run from something and yearning for something. So there's that duality all the time. And that gives the story a sort of like propulsive energy. Yeah. So even when all that's happening is somebody's having like a late night whispered conversation it has this forward momentum. It also has a very strong sense of place. There are rich descriptions of scenery and weather and wildlife. I looked at so many photos of marabou storks and ghost scorpions and a bird called the go-away bird. The go-away bird? Because mm -hmm. that's what you say to it? <laughs> I don't know why it's called the go-away bird. Maybe it's called the go-away bird because the bird wants you to go away. If I was going to name the grackles in Austin, I would have called them go-away birds. <laughs> I'll put a picture of the go-away bird in the show notes. It's very distinctive. It has kind of a crest on its head, and it does look a little intimidating. The descriptions of all the nature are visually specific and, again, beautiful and brutal. It is completely unromantic. These people are not on a safari vacation. They are not waxing romantic about the animals that they're seeing. Right. They're living in this dry, dusty land that's sometimes viciously swept clean by floods, where the birds make it clear that this is their home and the people are temporary. Yeah. I found this book really challenging and beautiful and sad and unsettling, but it had enough hope that I kept reading. I think people who listen to our show know I can go really, really dark as long as there's a glimmer yeah. of hope and empathy. And this book is rich with that. In an interview, the author said that Kenya is the place she loves and the place that makes her the most furious. That makes a lot of sense to me after yeah. reading her book. It's Dust by Yvonne Uwar. My first book is West with the Night by Beryl Markham. This was a recommendation from one of our listeners, Kate from Ohio. So thanks, Kate. I am going to tell you about Beryl Markham, and she is going to sound like a fictional character. <laughs> it's true. She is not. She's a real person. 
but it's going to sound like she's an overwritten adventure character, <laughs> like an old lover of Indiana Jones that he somehow has to reconcile with before they fetch the jar of souls from the haunted temple in the jungle. <laughs> this is this woman. But as far as I can tell, she really existed. Beryl Markham was born in England, and she moved to Africa with her family in the early 1900s when she was about four. Her dad bought a horse farm there in Kenya. Beryl had pale skin and curly blonde hair and was probably adorable as a child. She enjoyed playing with the local boys, and they introduced her to running barefoot and spear hunting. Beryl made friends with a Kenyan boy named Kibby, and with him she learned how to jump as high as her head. <laughs> because the local tribal leader believed that a man who couldn't jump as high as his head wasn't any good. Wow. Yeah. She also learned how to speak three different African languages. Good for her. Yep. When she was a kid, she survived an attack by a lion. What? Yep. At some point, her mom left Africa because she hated all of it, I imagine. And Beryl and her dad were left to run the horse farm. And we are just getting warmed up with Beryl. <laughs> At 18, her father left for Peru. He did not take Beryl. Before he left, he sold Beryl off in marriage to the neighbor. Mm, don't like that. Nope. While married, she became Africa's and maybe the world's first professional female racehorse trainer. She soon divorced her husband. And then she learned how to fly. An airplane. <laughs> Not physically fly. Did she grow wings? Because I would believe it. <laughs> An airplane. And keep in mind that this is like 18 years after the Wright brothers, right? This right. is <laughs> really early. In her 20s, she was the only woman working as a licensed pilot in all of Africa. She delivered mail and brought medicine to villages, and she helped scout for elephant hunters. This is what she was doing when she met Prince Henry, the third son of King George V. Henry's brother Edward would later abdicate the throne. She moved to London for a time, and according to some stories, ran barefoot in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Her relationship with Henry got so burdensome to the throne that Barrow was given a small lifetime stipend on the condition that she leave England immediately and never return. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then, on not much more than a dare, Barrow became the first person, male or female, to fly solo west across the Atlantic. Flying west is more challenging because the wind's in your face. On the 4th of September, 1936, she took off from Abingdon in the south of England. She took some chicken sandwiches and some homemade trail mix, plus a few flasks of tea and coffee and just a little brandy. And she flew what sounded like a fairly miserable 20-hour flight, mainly <laughs> in the dark. Her plane had fuel problems due to icing, and she crash-landed in a swamp in Nova Scotia. When she was landing, she smacked her head against the windshield she felt she'd failed because she had intended to get to New York, but the rest of the world did not feel that way. She was given a motorcade through New York City, and she waved to the crowds with a bandage rakishly plastered across her forehead. Breaking hearts on both sides of the Atlantic, I bet. There are a whole subset of stories about Beryl Markham's love life. I would read that book. <laughs> so from New York, she moved to California, where she worked as an advisor on movies, and then she wrote a book. She wrote West with the Night. West with the Night came out in 1942 to solid reviews, but a lot was going on in 1942. Mm -hmm. And the book went out of print. 
and the book was mostly forgotten for the next 40 years. Until in the 1980s, a well-connected restaurateur in Sausalito read the book. The restaurateur read about it because he was flipping through Ernest Hemingway's letters, and Hemingway mentioned the book. So, let's stop and think about all the stuff we know about Beryl so far. <laughs> she can jump as high as her head. She was an attack by a lion. She could fly. She was beautiful, brave. And it turns out, she could write. Here's what Hemingway said about West with the Night. Did you read Beryl Markham's book, West with the Night? She has written so well and marvelously well that I was completely ashamed of myself as a writer. <laughs> I felt that I was simply a carpenter with words, picking up whatever was furnished on the job and nailing them together and sometimes making an okay pig pen. But this girl, who is to my knowledge very unpleasant and we might even say a high-grade bitch, can write rings around all of us who consider ourselves as writers. It really is a bloody wonderful book. That is an amazing quote. Right? <laughs> I feel like that's the only argument you might need to read this book. <laughs> West with a Night was republished in the 80s, and it spent about a year on the New York Times bestseller list after that. The book retells her adventures growing up and ends with her crossing the Atlantic. Markham is a brilliant travel writer, a few episodes ago, we talked about how a good travel writer will make you want to do things that you know are a wrong choice for you. West with the Night made me want to go back and be a pilot in a two-seater over Africa in the 30s, <laughs> a decision that I suspect would kill me immediately. I'm just trying to figure out how we would fit your 6'5 body into one of those little planes. Although, if you could learn to jump as high as your head, that would be pretty impressive. I know. Maybe I should work on that for a while. Do that first. Yeah. West with the Night has since gone on to become one of National Geographic's best adventure books of all time. If anything I've said sounds even kind of like something you'd like to read, I'd recommend giving it a look. It's West with the Night by Beryl Markham. The sentence I'm about to say is like all spelled phonetically. <laughs> There's so many things. <laughs> You're not even ready. Okay. I'm braced. My second recommendation is The Perfect Nine. The Epic of Gekoyo and Mombi by Ngugi Wa Thiango. Wow. That was a lot of syllables that I've never heard come out of your face before. <laughs> this is an epic poem that tells the creation myth of the Gekoyo people of Kenya. Before I get into the book, I need to talk about the author because he is epic. Second epic author in a row. Indeed. Ngugi Wa Thiango is a teacher, novelist, essayist, and playwright. And his list of accolades is very, very long. So I just cherry pick some stuff. Okay. He was shortlisted for the Man Booker International Prize in 2009 for his entire body of work. He was longlisted for the International Booker Prize in 2021 for this book that I'm going to talk about. And according to the internet, Barack Obama is among his fans. Oh, that's nice. But before all of that, in 1977, Thiongo wrote his first novel. It's called Petals of Blood and tells the story of four characters in the time just after Kenya won its independence. He wrote that in English. One night after its publication, when he was working on a play, he was arrested and held without trial in a maximum security prison. Oh. He was jailed for a year. No idea what the charges were against him. No trial. No idea how long he was going to be there. Right. While he was there, 
he wrote another novel by hand on the scratchy prison toilet paper. And eventually, he chronicled his time in prison in a memoir called Wrestling with the Devil. That story is told in one extended flashback and describes his arrest and the agony of not knowing what he'd done or how long he was going to be there. Mm. And I read that and I feel like, well, if he was really bitter and disillusioned, I would completely understand why. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to be. He says that in prison, he clung to the idea that art is not just creativity, but is a form of resistance. And he said, resistance is the best way of keeping alive. While he was in prison, writing that book on the toilet paper, he decided to decolonize his own mind. He stopped writing in English and wrote in his native Gekoyo instead. And in 2018, he turned his talents to retelling the traditional Gekoyo creation myth. This is a story that all Gekoyo children know. Okay. According to the mythology, God put Gekoyo, which means man, and Mombi, which means woman, on the snow-capped top of Mount Kenya. And the couple looked around at the beautiful land at their feet, and they climbed down and made a home and had ten daughters known as the Perfect Nine. When the girls were of marrying age, Gekoyo asked God to provide for them. One morning, the family woke to find 99 handsome suitors outside their home, all eager to partner with their daughters. And an epic adventure followed to find the right match for each girl. So that's the mythology. Yeah. I want to read you the start of the prologue of this book to set the scene. Okay. I will tell the tale of Gekoyo and Mombi and their daughters, the Perfect Nine. I will tell of their travels and the countless hardships they met on the way. They faced hazards big enough to shatter the hearts of many. Their bodies trembled, but their hearts remained unshaken. I kind of want to hear that story around a fire. 100%. This is a story <laughs> that wants to be told out loud. Yeah. The author said that he'd been reading epics from other cultures. So the Odyssey, the Iliad, Indian epic poems. He found another one from Catalan in Spain. And those inspired him to transform his own tradition into that style of epic poem. Like those other examples, this story is filled with larger-than-life adventures. The Perfect Nine and their suitors face mortal danger and experience magical and inexplicable things. This story is told with hyperbole and humor, while the heroes run afoul of man-eating ogres, crocodiles, relentless mosquitoes, which I know would drive you crazy. Yeah, it would and a giant looming forest that suddenly disappears. Oh. Yeah. The descriptions of the ogres were my favorite part. There's the squint-eyed ogre, the ogre who makes men swallow dirt whether they like it or not. <laughs> There's the ogre of endless darkness who says, I am the darkness darker than darkness. I make clean hearts darker than darkness by leading them into paths of darkness and leaving them there. My darkness can never be undarkened. Wow. I mean. I think I knew that kid in high school. <laughs> A major difference between this epic poem and, say, Greek mythology is its feminist perspective. In his intro, Theongo says that the Perfect Nine grew up without brothers and had to depend on themselves, acquiring survival skills and working the land. He says to him, the perfect nine were the original feminists. 
When the perfect nine and their would-be husbands are out adventuring, it says, There was no saying this is men's or women's work. We did tasks according to ability and necessity and inclination. This is a quick read. It's just 240 pages, and it's first, so... So two nights around the fire. (laughs) It's accessible and profound at the same time. And as I mentioned and you mentioned, it really wants to be read out loud. You could read it to someone you love, including yourself, or you can read along with the audiobook. The Kenyan-American actor Benjamin Onyango has recorded many of Thiongo's books. His voice is very rich and velvety and has just the right hint of musicality. It's a perfect match to the content. When Gekoyo and Mombi looked back and saw a river of thick red mud moving toward them, they cried This book is The Perfect Nine, The Epic of Gekoyo and Mombi by Ngugi Wa Thiongo. My next book is When Stars Are Scattered by Omar Muhammad and Victoria Jameson. This is a graphic novel intended for children aged 9 to 12, according to the good people at Penguin Random House. That's a little shocking to me. (laughs) This is a story that has some darkness to it and some emotional depth. There are things in this book that might need unpacking no matter how old you are. When Stars Are Scattered is an autobiographical story. It centers on two brothers, Muhammad and Hassan. They're from Somalia. They fled there because one day insurgents came to their house and killed their father. Shortly after that, they are separated from their mother and their sisters. They were toddlers at the time. When the story starts, Muhammad and Hassan have made their way to a refugee camp in Kenya, and they have been there for seven years. Wow. Yep. One of the brothers, Hassan, is nonverbal. He has seizures. He is usually adorable, but sometimes he just gets up and runs off into the very dangerous desert that they are surrounded by. The boys are being cared for by an older woman that they met at the camp there. They live in a tent. They sleep on a mat on a dirt floor. I'm going to tell you some things about this book. But it is important to say up front that somehow, magically, this book has a core of optimism to it. I never felt all the way down. (laughs) The refugee center that they're at is not a small place. It's called the Dab. When the brothers arrived, it had a population of around 150,000 people. Wow. It has since gotten to a quarter of a million. According to the UN, it is the third largest refugee center in the world. And in this book, you get a good look at the Dab. The book presents the idea that everyone at a refugee center is suffering from trauma of some kind. I read that and I was kind of like, well, of course, but I had also never thought about that before. Mm -hmm. These people have lost everything. And that spills out as catatonia or drug use or nightmares or just fear that Mm -hmm. has solidified into anger. And there's crushing poverty. There is no electricity. There's no plumbing. Every 15 days, there's a delivery of rice and flour, but that never makes it to the next delivery. So there are days where they just drink tea made from bark. Some local boys will steal your pants. Other boys play soccer with a ball made of plastic bags kind of mushed together. But the worst of all of this seems to be the waiting There is waiting for water, there's waiting for food, waiting to find out whether you might be lucky enough to be resettled. 
that process itself is a process of waiting and can spread out for years. Mm -hmm. The book also paints a particularly bleak path for girls at Dadaab. One girl in the book is doing well in school, but then her father sells her into marriage for immediate financial gain. And that's it. She now has little hope of leaving Dadaab, and it feels tragic and sudden and final and out of her control. Yeah. The main storyline of this book is about Omar's education. It is the only thing that will get him out of this camp. And he likes doing it, and he's smart, but he also wants to take care of his brother. And how's that supposed to work? Omar would also like to see his mother again. Mm -hmm. And it is very unclear that that's possible. Do they know where she is? No. The last time they saw her, they were infants near the home. Routinely, he sees women inducted into the shelter that he hopes, thinks, might be her. Mm -hmm. The book... So the cover makes it look like you're getting into some sweet highlight story about the beauty of the African plains and then, bam, right in the fields <laughs> for about 250 pages. Mm -hmm. I think a reader with even a, the slightest bit of empathy will need a nice walk and maybe a little lie down after this one. The book was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Awards. It was also named one of the year's best by the Chicago Public Library and the New York Times and NPR. It is a solidly good book. There's also a very well-rated audiobook of this. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's got an entire cast and music and sound effects. The first thing I do every day after morning prayers is I fetch water. That can take hours. Usually I'm committed to having graphics in my graphic novels, but <laughs> the audiobook sounds great. Also, I wanted to mention the major roads of Dadaab have been mapped by Google. So you can go to Google Maps and search there and drop the little man on the roads and see what that all looks like. Take a walk through the major roads of Dadaab. But for this book, this is a surprisingly deep look at a refugee camp and the people there. It could work for readers of all ages. And if you're looking for a read-along with someone younger, it's definitely worth considering. This is When Stars Are Scattered by Omar Muhammad and Victoria Jameson. Okay, I'm going to lighten things up with my final recommendation. True, okay. Yeah. My last recommendation is A Guide to the Birds of East Africa by Nicholas Drazen. Is it, in fact, A Guide to the Birds of East Africa? Sort of. Oh. It's a short, sweet rom-com set in modern Nairobi. Okay. And I loved it for four reasons. One, it's a rom-com told from the male perspective. Two, it has lots of details about bird watching and sightseeing in Kenya. Three, it's mostly light and airy, but as secrets are revealed, the story has more depth than it appears at first. And four, and this is a big one, reading it made me feel happy and nice. <laughs> well, that's lovely. So here's the setup. Yeah. Our hero is Mr. Malik. He is a shy widower whose son recently died. The core of his social life is his Tuesday birdwatching excursion led by a Scottish widow named Rose. So this is a middle-aged love story. Yes, it is. Wow. Rose is described as red of hair and fair of skin. Mr. Malik is in love with Rose. He is brown, short, round, and balding. Mm. If he was a bird, he would be a chubby little finch or a wren. But as the narrator of the story reminds us, Passions burn as fiercely in Mr. Malik's breast as those of other men. Mr. Malik is working up the courage to invite Rose to the annual Nairobi Hunt Club Ball. 
when disaster strikes. His old school nemesis, Harry, shows up. Harry is a peacock. Oh, no. He's rich and extroverted. If you were being complimentary, you might call him a jokester. But if you were being accurate, you would describe him as a bully. He sets his sights on Rose, too. Oh, no. Yes. Rather than put Rose in the uncomfortable position of being publicly courted by both of them, the two men embark on a gentleman's bet. Whoever can spot and identify the highest number of birds in one week will win the right to invite Rose to the ball. For the men, the wager is a way to win their heart's desire. For us, it's a way to explore Kenyan scenery and wildlife. (laughs) One of the things I enjoyed about this story is the different approaches that Mr. Malik and Harry take to looking for the birds because their methods represent their personalities and also show us two different sides of Kenya. Our sweet wren, Mr. Malik, looks for birds in his everyday life. So with him, we get to see a little bit of what it's like to live in Nairobi. He looks for birds in his yard and a nearby city park that's maybe a little past its prime. He hunts at the mouth of a sore. Oh. It is not a glamping safari. No. But it is interesting because you can see everyday life in Nairobi. Right. We meet his shamba boy. That's a young man who helps him with his garden and projects around the house. Benjamin, the shamba boy, is 16 and never been kissed. He gets full board and lodging with Mr. Malik plus pay. And here's a description of his routine. Once a month, he climbed up a ladder onto the roof and swept the gutters. What he swept up, he took outside and burned on a bonfire by the side of the road. Every residential street in Nairobi is lined with small bonfires, piled with all the leaves that fall from the trees and other rubbish. The smell of Nairobi is the smell of small bonfires. That's a detail you wouldn't expect. Well, I feel like it's like it's so specific. I'm like, oh, I understand something about Nairobi now. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Harry, the peacock, of course, does the opposite. He uses his wealth and influence to travel all over Kenya in search of exotic birds and other wildlife. So with him, we visit Lake Victoria and Mount Kenya. We go to a rainforest and Nairobi National Park. His bird-watching adventures are like mini travel logs. Yeah. Here's a little snippet. The lovely island of Lamu had exceeded expectations. Only yards from the aircraft steps at the airport on Manda Island, they'd been dive-bombed by a spur-winged plover. Pearl-breasted swallows swooped low over the grass beside the runway. A colony of yellow-backed weavers were chirping and squabbling on a large weeping bougainvillea, while two pairs of dusky turtle doves cooed their sad four-note disapproval from a nearby telephone wire. From the boat on the way over to Lamu Island, they identified six species of gulls and terns and watched an osprey speed low over the water, reach down with its talons, and pluck a silver fish from just below the surface. So this is a book that demands image searching on Google. 100%. (laughs) I was looking at a lot of photos. Yeah. I should also mention that the narrator sometimes comments on the action and addresses the reader. He seems very amused by the proceedings. I found it very charming. It's like a subtle sort of nod to 19th century style, which goes really nicely with the sweet content. Right. This book is a good antidote to the heaviness of something like dust. I liked reading both books together to kind of get a complete reading experience. Here's a book that shows me more about Kenya. Here's a book that makes it seem like it would be fun to go to Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> we need both. Yeah. 
I just found this book, Darling, and the pages turned themselves. It's A Guide to the Birds of East Africa by Nicholas Drayson. If you read and enjoy this book, the author wrote a sequel. It's called A Guide to the Beasts of East Africa, and it finds our wren, Mr. Malik, planning a safari and investigating the real-life, decades-old murder of Lord Errol. A murder mystery? Yes. A cozy murder mystery in the jungle? That sounds great. Yeah, I'm excited to read that one. Those are five books we love set in Kenya. Visit our show notes at strongsenseofplace.com for links and details. We will take you to the Giraffe Manor. There will be many pictures of birds, including the go-away bird. And you can hear the rest of that Jimmy Racha tune, too. <laughs> I think we should bring the... What is it? Jimmy Racha? Jimmy Racha. Jimmy Racha? I think we should, all of us together, Strong Sense of Place Army, activate... <laughs> Let's bring back Jimmy Raja to describe things that are fascinating and new. Yeah, I like it. Mel, can you tell us where we're going for our next episode? We're heading to South America to eat some empanadas and dance the tango in Argentina. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>